This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. I'm very pleased to welcome to Digging in the Dirt, Isabella Rossellini. In addition to a very successful modeling career, Isabella has started in some extraordinary films like Blue Velvet, and most recently, she was the voice of Grandma Connie in the delightful stop-action Oscar-nominated film Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. But I invited her here today not to talk about films, but to talk to me about her wonderful organic farm in Brookhaven, Long Island, called Mama Farm where Miss Rossellini has a popular CSA and raises endangered breeds of farm animals. Welcome, Isabella. Hi, I'm delighted to be on your program. Yep, thank you. Well, my wife and I saw you speak at the church in Sag Harbor at the recent Creativity Conference, and I just had to bring you on and let my listeners know what you're doing over there. Uh, I thought maybe I'd just read what your statement on your website first, because it sort of gets us situated as to what you're doing. Your mission statement is, our goal is for Mama Farm to be the piazza for our community, where knowledge and inspiration can be shared with a common goal of preserving and celebrating the heritage of our environment and Mother Nature, the Mama on whom we all depend. I like that a lot. So (laughs) it sounds like you're doing some good stuff. So give us an idea of how you became a steward of the land and its animals on Mama Farm. Well, it didn't didn't start with a statement. It didn't start by saying, let's do something. It started with a piece of land uh, that we, the community, love. It was uh, 40 acres where the married brother, uh, an order of priests, would retire. And in times, uh, there were only two priests, and we all walked their land. They were kind of old and stayed in the house and just walked around, and they allow us to walk the 40 acres of wood, which were wonderful. And then about uh, maybe 13, 14 years ago, that land was subdivided and sold to a developer. And uh, we were all very upset because it was a wooded area where we walked our children, our dogs. uh, And so we, since the developer uh, bought 30 acres uh, with the community, we bought uh, the remaining 10 acres to do an open space in Suffolk County, matched uh, the money that we raised uh, to buy it. And now we had 10 acres that were for open space and we continue our promenade in the nature, even if in a smaller area. And then the developer at a certain point called me and she said that she got discouraged about the economy that was around 2009. So 2008, there was a big crash. And would I buy the rest? And I said, well, I'm not a developer. I I don't know what to do. And and she said, well, you're a tree hugger. You might want to do a farm. (laughs) (laughs) And instead, it exploded in our hands because it was a real thirst in the community to have a farm, to go and take walks, to teach the children the seasonality of the vegetables. And and so it it developed slowly. Um, And and now I think of it more as belonging to the community than being my private garden. And so I'm operating with that concept in mind. Well, I like the, what you're saying in that statement. Like, you know, in America, we don't have piazzas. Over there, I, when I went to <laughs> Europe, I go, wow, piazzas are such a good idea. You know, people gather and do things, and, and that's sort of the concept behind the farm now. Exactly. This is what happened naturally. 
uh, people came. I, my, I have a daughter who has two small children, five and two, and she has a, a lot of other friends who have children young, and, and they were the first one to come and gather at this place. Uh, and then when we start buying the animals, uh, we generally bought female. We started with eggs, so we bought mostly chicken because the rooster, they make noise, they they can be aggressive. So when I buy chickens, I only really buy females. And then we started the bees, and the bee, of course, uh, 90% of the population is naturally female. And then there were all these mothers with their babies. So it, And then I started the farm, and I am my daughter's mama. <laughs> and he's now the executive director of something that has got more more formal in the 10 years we owned the land. And so that's how he became nicknamed Mama Farm. And then we thought that was a good name because there is Mother Nature and we are Mama Farm, smaller version of it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And so how did you become so knowledgeable about animals? Because there's a lot going on there. So I, I, I do have a master's degree on uh, uh, ethology, which is the science of animal behavior and conservation. And I've always loved animals. So I always had dogs, cats. Uh, uh, but um, th that's why I think I was attracted to do the farm. I thought, oh, when I retired, I can have a little farm and have all these animals and get to know them personally and observe their behavior and not just have cats and dogs who I love. I mean, I love cats and dogs, but I it was wonderful to have a farm so you can uh, get to know the animal person personally, you know, because they they have different personality, different behavior. And that's how it started. And now instead, it, it can explode it in our hands. And so um, we are operating, we have created a, a trust, we are thinking about an endowment. Uh, you know, now it, it becomes an, an, a complete different operation that when it started. And and it changed because of the need uh, that we saw in the community. The community was so happy to have a farm. And we are very, you know, I'm Italian, so it's very convivial. I let people come in and, no, friends, I mean, foreign people that I don't know, they cannot come in because in America, there's always the problem of the lawsuits and insurances. So <laughs> it cannot be open <laughs> totally, but it's open to all my friends and friends of friends. And, and that's how it became part of. The community. But I have to say also an encounter with a wonderful farmer called Patty Gendry. You may want to one day um, meet her and maybe interview sure, her. Sure, absolutely. I like farmers, as I told you. <laughs> yeah. So the second day after, uh, uh, two days after the closing, where I was there saying, how do I start a farm? And in complete uh, buyer's regret, uh, a phone call came in and it was a real estate agent saying, I have uh, two women that are married and they are looking for a place in uh, Brookhaven where my farm is, but one of them wants to be a farmer and she's looking for land. And the only land that is available is the one that you just purchased. Would you be interested in doing a farm? I couldn't believe the phone call. I just said, oh, is this a miracle? I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. so I called this miracle. So I said, of course, I'd like to meet her. And I met her and she reminded me so much of my mother. And Patty had been a chef for 25 years, and she had a very successful restaurant, too, called the uh, Hampton Chutney, um, that is loved by many, where she does a doza, which is a kind of a, a Indian crepe, and she put different vegetables in it. And everybody knew her for that, her successful restaurant, one in Soho and one in Amagansett. And then she worked as a chef at the Ross School, which is a private school 
at Sag Harbor that only serves organic food um, collected locally. But since the school was closed in the summer, she started to volunteer at the farms, you know, to understand the, and as a, as a cook, you know, she's very interested in ingredient. And she grew a passion to become a farmer. And she wanted to leave a career as a chef to become a farmer. And she did it with me. And she's incredibly successful at it. Her operation, which is within Mama Farm, so Mama Farm is 28 acres. She rents three acres of Mama Farm to have her early girl farm. So she's inside us. I get it. Yes. And she also operates through a CSA. Do your listener know what it is, a CSA? Sure. Community-sponsored agriculture. Right. So or supported. You, so Yes. So you buy the share of what we produce. So I have 150 chicken. I don't sell you six eggs or 12 eggs. You buy the share. So I try to guarantee you uh, 12 eggs per week. But sometimes we don't have 12 eggs per week. Sometimes we have less. Sometimes we have more because you're buying the share. Mm-hmm. Very good. And what kind of uh, vegetables is Patty growing on, the, on her farm for the CSA? Patty grows uh, an incredible uh, big variety, uh, and uh, some some have names like French aristocrats, you know, like so complicated <laughs> that I can never remember. But she has eight types of tomatoes, for example, at least three or four eggplants. Uh, and uh, so looking at Patty working, so when Patty started to work at the farm, I, I, I bought a few chicken, I started uh, the bees, uh, and then Patty was talking about heirloom, and heirloom is old seeds that have not been genetically modified, but we don't use any genetically modified because we are an organic farm. But you can do you know, hybrid um, seeds and all that. And so she explained to me all these differences. And then I discovered that the tendency to have monoculture in the industrial farming, it's also true. Uh, not only for vegetables, but also for animals. For vegetables, we know we only eat one type of corn, one type of spinach, while there are many other types. And the other types might be called heirlooms, they are old seeds. And the same is true for animal. We eat one type of chicken, mostly one chicken breed called broiler. The, the chicken that lays eggs is two breeds. The industry is so specialized that the industry has a meat bird or egg laying birds. They are two different uh, industries. And heritage breed corresponds to the word heirloom, but for animals. There are a lot of breeds of animals, farm animals, that are endangered. And I thought, oh, maybe Mama Farm, instead of just having chicken, we can have a variety of these old breeds to also maintain biodiversity. And I contacted an organization called the Livestock Conservancy that keeps a census of the population of all these endangered breeds of animals, endangered breeds of horses, of cow, of sheep, pigs, goats. And with their advice, I started a, a collection of chickens of ancient breeds. I have... For example, the crèvecoeur, which is critically endangered, only 200 crèvecoeur are uh, still existing, and we have about really, uh, yeah, and we have about 30 at uh, Mama Farm. So critically endangered is when the animal is down to 200 in numbers, and then 
they go to uh, um, endangered and watched. You know, they have the same classification, uh, same wording as the wild animals. But here we're not talking about species. We're talking about breeds. Right. And to make it clear, when I explain it to people, I say, let's say we all know we have dog breeds. And let's say that we select to now on, we will only have dog sound. And that's the only dog we have, and all the other breeds are neglected. So you're going to lose a lot of talents. You're going to lose uh, the herding dog, the hunting dog, the guard dogs. You're going to lose, uh, you know, many breeds and their talents. And and that's why at Mama Farm, we keep uh, these ancient breeds going in our minuscule farm. So we have 20 of them, five of them, of that breed, of that breed. Wow, that sounds wonderful. You know, we're speaking with Isabella Rossellini. Yes, that Isabella Rossellini, who is now a steward of the land and of, like she said, different animals. Uh, why do we need heritage breeds? Why are they so important? You've touched on it a little bit. Uh, yes, I think it's biodiversity. It's important to maintain. Uh, you might have uh, read, uh, for example, that in northern in Norway, uh, in the northern part of Norway, there is a bank that keeps all the different seeds collected all over the world, just in case there is a crash or a disease that kills uh, mm-hmm. um, our potatoes. Uh, then you can go to this bank and find potatoes that might grow in a region, a remote region, who might be resistant to that disease, and you can start again potatoes. So it is important to keep uh, the breeds uh, because each breed has something to offer. To go back to the dogs, it takes centuries to breed a dog who has the talent for herding sheep, right? So mm-hmm. they all have it a little bit in them. And then you, a generation after generation, you enhance that herding instinct until you get a herding dog. If you lose that breed, you lose that talent. It's going to take a lot of time, centuries, to breed again that type of dog. And that's the same thing for chicken. We might have chickens that are resistant to to certain bacteria or chickens that are better adapted to cold weather. There is one, for example, it's called a cochin, that has feathers down their paws, it's very fluffy, has a lot of hair. It's a Chinese breed um, that lives in a very cold area. So it's good to have that because that chicken can live in a very cold climate. And we have other chickens that are better for the desert. But it's not only geographically, but it also could be uh, resistant to disease. There are differences. And so we want to maintain that difference. You don't want to create a monoculture because a monoculture might, you know, there is 9 billion chicken, but it's only one species. And if there is a disease, and that species gets infected all, you can lose a lot of animals. We are losing. This year has been a significant year of great loss of birds because there is the avian flu that has killed a lot of birds, a lot Mm -hmm. of chicken. That's why the eggs are so expensive. So it sounds like you don't want the chickens and the turkeys marrying their second cousins in a kind of a way. Right. When you were speaking at this conference, you told us about 
turkey chickens and turkeys but two things and chickens the you know because of the idea that they're it's a monoculture they lay eggs all year round but that wasn't really the nature of them and mm. also turkeys i was really taken aback by what you said about turkeys and being too fat to breed maybe you can tell us a little bit about that the, the, the regular turkey that we eat at thanksgiving apparently is artificially inseminated because it's a turkey that it's quite fat because we like the fat content in the meat. And so it has to be artificially inseminated, uh, which, you know, I never e didn't even know it existed as a job. But I'm told <laughs> it's quite simple. Uh, you know, you, you you go around with a brush uh, and a female uh, with sperms, you know, that you've taken from the male and you brush the female and they get pregnant. I mean, I've never seen it and I've never done it, so I don't know. But yes, a lot of animals... In fact, the definition of heritage breed when it comes to turkeys and chicken or ducks is that they have to have a, a skeleton that can support their weight when they are adults because the broiler, the, chick, the chicken that we uh, eat, generally is slaughtered at seven weeks. It's not even mature. We considered an animal mature when he reaches sexual maturity and they would lay an egg. But at seven weeks, no no chick lays eggs. Maybe starts, you know, a few weeks later, but they're killed before that. So what we eat is really a very obese chick. And if you let them grow further, their skeleton will not support their weight. And uh, uh, also they are so fat that they're genital, they cannot mate naturally. They have to be artificially inseminated. And chickens, you know, when they raise their chicks, they have an hormonal command that makes them go broody, meaning they are sitting on the eggs for 21 days, keeping the eggs warm. And that's what stimulates the growth of the embryo. And then the chick at 21 days then start breaking the shell of the eggs from inside and pops out. When they are brooding, they are not laying eggs. So we have selected in generation after generation, chicken that uh, uh, didn't go broody um, so naturally. So, so, you know, that didn't go broody a lot to create a breed that never goes broody. So the chicken, the modern chicken have forgot the way to be mothers. They will not be able to sit 21 days on the eggs to maturity. So the heritage breed, the definition of a heritage breed is an animal that has physically fitted, that it can hold, a skeleton can hold the weight, can mate naturally, can forge naturally, and can raise their youngs, their, their offsprings naturally. Wow. I didn't know all this stuff. <laughs> Thanks for explaining all that. <laughs> it's a it's amazing process. And I, I guess that's why, we're like you said, we're having problems with the... Uh, chickens that are grown in such vast uh, amounts. Yes, the chicken that I, I think a lot of people protest uh, on the condition of the chicken and the animal welfare and all that. But I didn't know, I discovered, you really going to the university and researching, that term domestication is modifying an animal to make an animal that is useful to us. But mm -hmm. you can modify that animal to the point where the animal... Um, is so compromised, like uh, the modern chickens. Mm -hmm. So at Mama Farm, we have heritage breeds. So 
let's talk a minute about sheep and goats. You know, there's a rock band that I play called Cake that has a song that goes, sheep go to heaven and goats go to hell. What do you think about that? So sheep are sheepish and goats are much more friendly. That was also something I discovered. And that's what I liked uh, about having my farm, that you discovered that animals have distinct personalities that you might know about our dogs or our cats. And that is true of sheep and goats. They have distinct, even chicken, they have distinctive personalities. But generally, sheep are sheepish and goats are much more friendly. I'm try- I don't know the answer to it. I've tried to read it in books. And I just the other day read a paragraph that might explain, uh, all goes back to evolution, and it all goes back to many, many 20, 30,000 years ago. But the ancestor, the, of course, the goat and the sheep had a common ancestor. And then these populations split, and some of them lived in the valley, and some of them went up the mountains. And the one that went up the mountains, they became, um, they were less predator, and so they became more confident, as, and they became eventually, in the century, they became the goats. The one that stayed in the valleys, they were a lot they were very susceptible to being uh, hunted by the predator and so they became more skittish uh, and more prone to you know run away and all that so that remained uh, in their dna is still encoded and you can clearly see it mm-hmm. the interesting thing about the sheep and goat the sheep so you have a do you have a dog yes so you know that dogs in the winter they have a a, a little thicker coat mm-hmm. uh, to keep themselves warm, and then they shed that coat in the spring. Too much. True. Yeah, too much, right. And that is true of also sheep and goats, especially sheep, because sheep have been domesticated for 10,000 years, and little by little, we promoted the winter coat uh, that is soft and warm to become very dominant and not to shed anymore. So sheep, what you have, the fleece, the wool, is these uh, hairs, the winter hairs that uh, nowadays, 10,000 years later, doesn't come off naturally. And that's why you need to shear them. Mm, makes sense. You no, know, and then there is, of course, different breeds of, of sheep. And you can have a wool that it is very good for carpet or ropes and other wool that is very good for sweaters because it's softer so there are different breeds that can offer different uh, things to do with wool and why do we want to preserve heritage sheep for instance uh, well because there is uh, first of all what is called today uh, fleece is plastic and plastic even you know they say it's recycled but sometimes they de- they make it they pulverize it they make it very very thin so it doesn't look like it's plastic anymore but it can still float in the sea and small animal can ingest it and it isn't uh... i wanted to do a funeral and uh, uh buried one uh, uh, sweater of fleece that is really made of recycled plastic and one sweater that is made with my the wool from my sheep and i know that the wool from my sheep in a year will become soil, and the other one will still be exactly the same. I just need to shake it off and wear it again. 
all products that are made of plastic, as we know, they don't compost. They remain plastic. And the wool is compostable. Wow. So much. So complicated. So, so once you get, I mean, it was complicated, and then once you learn it, and and then it, it all falls into place. It's it's almost like a puzzle, you know. That at the beginning you just say, "I don't understand," "I don't understand," and then boom, uh, all it becomes very clear. I really admire your passion and and your knowledge. It's it's incredible. I read that Mama Farm aims to foster the next generation of environmental stewards. How how are you going about doing that? Well, you know, we hope to be a place, it seems to us, to me and my daughter, uh, it seems to us that um, people love to come at Mama Farm. And some people, they come and naively say, oh, it is so serene here and I can rest because they they don't work. Because <laughs> the farm work is a lot of work. But And then people keep coming and then they discover, as I have discovered through Patty, that there is heirloom and then they discover that there is heritage breed and then they discover that animals have personalities and then they discover that there is a certain amount of welfare that needs to be respected. Um, and, and this is what we're doing. It. I mean, we're not preaching anything. It really it started as a private, like, I like animals. I'm going to have my own animals. I'm going to have my own little farm. And and people flock to us. There was a real need to understand nature, to reconnect with nature, to understand how it works. And in that sense, we hope to provide the information as it has been for us in these 10 years we had Mama Farm. We've learned so much. By learning, then you make decisions how do you want to go about nature, but you cannot not fall in love with it. I tell you, it's amazing. Yeah, it's hard work. Farmers, are, you know now, right? It's a lot of hard work. But nature is amazing. Yes. You, know, you don't. You may not decide to be a farmer, but you may decide to be an environmentalist. You know exactly. Uh, Defend it. For example, one of we live in a very uh, residential area in Brookhaven, and there's a lot of New Yorkers that own their um, houses here, their weekend home, and they have grass. And we discover that even just to have the grass that you have can be incredibly polluting. Uh, you should have a mixed grass uh, um, that can feed uh, bugs. But generally, we get a grass that doesn't feed bugs because we don't want to walk on bugs in case they bite us. And then you need to fertilize it. And then this fertilizer, they go right into the bay and in the ocean, and they modify the ocean, polluting it or promoting the development of algae, and then the algae suffocates uh, the shell. So, you know, once you start understanding all this mechanism, uh, you don't have to need a farm. But uh, my daughter, for example, is now, we live in the village of Belport, which is next to Brookhaven. And my daughter uh, is part of the environmental committee of Belport, and they are promoting to plant indigenous Long Island plant because you awesome. would need Yes, because you would need less chemicals to make them grow. You need less water to make them grow. And the wild animals, bugs, butterflies, uh, can feed on it. So, so that is one thing that comes out of Mama Farm. For my daughter, that was her inspiration to work. Sure, with. we all can do a little bit in our own yards, yeah. and then we interconnect like the pollinator pathway. And everybody, exactly. everybody doing it together makes a bigger impact. And also, I think a lot of times I made a lot of mistakes because I was not informed. 
Right. I, you know, and uh, and at Mama Farm, I've learned so much. And so we're open for people to come and stay with us and they can get a lot of information. I never understood bees when I went to school and studied animal behavior and the bees. I could never understand it fully until I got my hives. And now I understand um, how to be a beekeeper. It's great. You have an open mind and you're learning so much. It's uh, That's why I wanted to bring you here to tell everybody what's going on. I saw a short film about a mama farm. Where can people see that? That's, that was really quite nice. <laughs> that little film, yes. Uh, um, there is a, a grant that is given every year by a woman called uh, Edwina um, von Fürstenberg that I think works with the United Nations and they do... Um, they get uh, 12 different artists from all over the world to make a film about one subject. And uh, this year, the subject, 2023 or 2022, last year, it was environment. And she asked me to do a film. And I said, well, I explained to her that I wasn't really, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an animal behaviorist, I'm an ecologist, but I'm not in you know, in the woods looking at tigers or looking at chimpanzee in Tanzania. I said, I, I just have my farm. And she said, oh, that would be so interesting uh, because of my heritage breach. She thought it was uh, part of the conservation message. And so yeah, it, it made the little the little film, the eight-minute film about Mama Farm. Where can they see it? Right now, she has the rights of the film, and the film is distributed all over the world. I don't know that she has a platform. Eventually, we'll go to a platform. Okay. Right now, he's still touring all the different festivals, and he has been in Brazil, in Switzerland, in Italy. Uh, and I asked special permission to show them at the church uh, in Sag Harbor. It was it's quite nice. And then, then the, the rights revert back to me. And so, I don't know, this is a new world. I'm old, uh, but you know, <laughs> I have a, a YouTube channel, or I don't know how to. You know, you can't put it on Instagram because it's eight minutes long. Or yeah, maybe I'm can. sure they'll I'll, figure I'll, it I'll, out. <laughs> I'll, they'll figure it out. My daughter will figure it out. She's yeah. capable yeah. with the computer. Just hunt it down. What's the name of it? Is it just called Mama Farm? or? No, it's called Domestication, the film. Okay. Domestication, yeah. folks. That's what you want to look for. So, uh, Isabella Rossellini, any advice you can leave for small farmers that you've learned in your struggles to make Mama Farm work so successfully? Well, uh, oh, I, you know, I feel like I'm the newcomer that I'm I'm always asking advice to others rather than giving. Yeah, advice. but you've learned some things. What do you what did you learn? I've learned uh, at Mama Farm that it that doing things hang, hands on is better than reading it in books, at least from my brain. Because when I read it in books, I might understand some of it, but not totally. And then I don't understand uh, the, compl the truly complication nature of uh, farming, bad weather, an illness, uh, um, how to observe animals and, uh, um, I don't know, little things. You know, you have chickens and chickens, there is a pecking order. And if you look at your chicken long enough, you see that there is some that eat more than others. And so if all of a sudden one chicken looks uh, weak or thin, it may not it may not be sick. It just needs a second station. So you keep the aggressive chicken to eat and then you create a two or three station for food. So everybody has a chance to eat. Um, the same thing with water. We always create different stations for water and food. Those are things that you learn uh, 
by observing them. And uh, for me, at least, uh, it has been more a learning curve to have a farm than to read about farm. Yeah, I agree with that totally. So last question before I let you go. What one thing do you love the most about the experience? Is it like early mornings with the animals? What is it that you love so much? Yes, I think I think it's the incredible process of learning, and uh, and that you're you're always alert to look at minute little things. Yesterday, I walked in Patty's greenhouse, and she was very agitated because it was Sunday, and she had gone out to dinner with some friends, and. Uh, she came back to the greenhouse and she said, this, this plant, and it was a plant, I tell you, it was a half an inch. Look, look at this. This plant is so thirsty. It's about to die. And I looked at it and indeed, it looked a little weak. <laughs> it gave it a few drops of water. And then we came by half an hour later and she was, and the plant was all propped up. And it was that kind of observation in a greenhouse. She has lots of lots of little baby plant and one teeny, teeny plant, the water didn't get to it. And she noticed immediately. So you, your eyes become more acute. You see things that you hadn't seen before. Because in the city, everything is very strong. Traffic, people, advertisement. And in the farm and in nature, everything is whispered. So you have to kind of learn it to, to hear the whispers. That's nice. Well, Isabella Rossellini, thank you so much for coming on Digging in the Dirt. Thank you so much. I love Digging in the Dirt. <laughs> You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 